Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. My guest is Dr. Alden Cass. He's a therapist, a clinical psychologist, and performance coach for Wall Street executives and traders, athletes, and other wealthy type A personalities. He's the author of Bullish Thinking, and he'll have more to tell us about how the COVID-19 economy has reshaped the world of mental health. I think we're seeing a lot of uh, manic behavior, like we saw in 99, before the tech bubble popped. A lot of what troubles me or worries me about the next six to eight months is what happens if once the stimulus packages stop, unemployment continues to rise and people start to suffer uh, and big and small businesses continue to suffer and cities have a lot of trouble taking care of their citizens. Yeah, well, it's definitely uh, impacted people tremendously on an emotional level because there is a lot of isolation. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Dr. Alden Cass operates Competitive Street Consulting in New York City, and we'll take a deep dive into economic uncertainty and into the far-reaching implications of shutdowns and social distancing on well-being and mental health. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. My guest is Dr. Alden Cass, a clinical psychologist and therapist in New York City. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Dr. Cass, on your website, you say the industry is now accepting the fact that psychology and business do coexist. What did you mean by that? What I was referring to came out of the 9-11 tragedy that affected a great deal of Wall Street and how that was a, a big pivot point in the history of Wall Street where the big businesses out there started to believe that it was okay for people to have emotional issues. Um, and the people on Wall Street felt like it was okay because of the tragedy that they all experienced. It was a shared 
trauma. Um, so people were now pushed to get help for their issues, and it wasn't looked down upon like a stigma uh, like it was previously. Um, and I think it just continued on on that path. A lot of big businesses have now included employee assistance programs as part of their outreach for their employees to try to make them feel like they have a place to go when they're down and troubled. Uh, and I think that that has continued on and is continues to uh, be a big part of that coexistence between mental health and Wall Street. Many people have made that comment, too, that in the past, a generation or two ago, mental health, mental weakness was stigmatized. It was something that was overlooked, pushed under the carpet, but that has all now changed. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, it has. However, there's always still the, some remnants of the past in terms of specific corporate cultures. Not every company is built the same or not every company has the same culture, you know, or work environment where people still, even though it's, it's unspoken, a lot of high profile, high pressure executives uh, still feel the need to keep up with the rest of the, the pack and work through their problems as opposed to dealing with them. You're the author of Bullish Thinking, and you've been interviewed and a guest on various shows, TV, radio, over the years. And you've written about market and mood swings in a previous post on your website. Are we seeing a lot of mood swings in today's market with this amazing run up in the Dow? I don't think we're seeing any swings yet. Uh, I think we're seeing a lot of uh, manic behavior like we saw in 99 before the tech bubble popped. A lot of what troubles me or worries me about you know, the next six to eight months is what happens if once the stimulus packages stop and unemployment continues to rise and people start to suffer. Uh, and big and small businesses continue to suffer and cities have a lot of trouble taking care of their citizens. I feel like we're setting ourselves up potentially for another tech bubble pop like we saw in 99 into 2000, uh, where everyone believed that the stocks that they were putting money in, the companies that they were investing in were good bets. And in fact, in the time that they were, they felt that they had the Midas touch where everything they touched would literally turn to gold. And we're seeing that a lot now with the tech stocks. It's, it's very similar. You know, what we're seeing right now where literally people can go on Robinhood, become a, a day trader at 17, 18 years old. Uh, you know, and it's, it's scary uh, that they can invest money into companies and, and they're making money because uh, the stocks continue to rise. And a lot of them are over overvalued relative to their fundamentals and the and the technical analysis, which would say that they should be much their price per share should be much lower. So we're seeing a and it continues to grow no matter what. So when things are going up, people's moods go up. But as soon as there's you know some sense of freefall, you know my concern is that that with enough data points supporting a pullback people will start to get nervous, scared, and then they will trade with fear. Um, and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, like we saw in, in 1999 into 2000. 
Well, you watch the markets very closely. You have over the years, and for good reason. You have a front seat into Wall Street. Many of your clients are Wall Street professionals and executives, and also you have clients in the entertainment field. So what do you think they're wondering now about this Fed infusion and the Fed buying back a lot of corporate debt? These professionals know what's going on. They have a very keen sense and intuition that if the rug is pulled on all this financial stimulus or there is a sudden U-turn in the Fed policy, this could come to a screeching end. Any thoughts about that? As I said to you before, this is people feel really good as long as stimulus keeps going. You know, it's it's helping to all of these government fixes have perpetuated a lot of this growth since the pandemic started. The Trump administration paid a lot of attention to keeping the markets up. So that that is actually, you know, it did what it was supposed to do. It kept it up. However, you know, there's only so much stimulus you can continue to provide. Um, and once that runs out and, and a few bad data points come and things start to have to normalize on their own, it's kind of like giving an individual an antidepressant um, and replacing serotonin when they're depressed and expecting that when that, you know, they stop the medication, the person is going to magically develop their own serotonin on their own to feel good all the time. You know, this is kind of like the markets, like what is going to artificially fuel uh, the market once the stimulus packages stop and the government fixes stop, you know, and, and eventually like if some any bad data or bad news comes into the into play, in addition to the pandemic recovery, you know, how do people perceive it? How will they respond? And if traders and the Wall Street community fall into the fear factor, decisions made by fear tend to not work out so well and they feeds on each other. And then we see implosions like we did after the tech bubble in 2000 and a lot of depression that comes after it. Are any of these Wall Street professionals, you know, sharing any insights with you? Where do they see this ending? You know, I, I have a good amount of hedge fund managers that I work with, uh, some of which are very bearish and are trading based on that. That's their trading thesis. And then I have others that continue to see this as an opportunity to continue to grow for at least the next six months. So, you know, it's, it's across the board. Everyone has a different viewpoint. I don't know if anybody has a definitive answer or outcome, but there are various scenarios have been laid out by analysts and some of them point to utter disaster, uh, you know, financial catastrophe. Others are suggesting we may just come out of this with financial matters intact. But whichever way you look at it, this stimulus, reasonably speaking, can't go on forever. It defies any rational sense. The Fed debt, national debt, trillions upon trillions of dollars. The Fed engaging in intervention, buying back corporate bonds. At some point, this will have a day of reckoning. One would assume. However, no one wants to miss the boat while it's still riding. <laughs> so yeah, right. you know, you're, you're never going <laughs> to you're never going to sell at the right time, and and. 
one thing I've learned from following the markets like I have uh, since last March, analysts don't seem to have a clue as to when it's going to end because you can get you get very different takes from ver- a, a variety of analysts on where the market's going up or down. A lot of people have been wrong for a very long time. As I've learned, you're if you're you're one day you're right, then <laughs> you have your big win for the year. Well, nobody saw this run up coming, or if they did, they were they were smart and intuitive. A lot of people have done very well during the pandemic, especially our billionaires. God bless them. I wrote about that uh, in the New York Post. I mean, some amazing growth in their personal wealth, uh, while the average pundit barely scraped by or has lost a lot of money. But there's new data coming out showing that a lot of working Americans have, interestingly enough, saved money during the pandemic because there's nowhere to spend it. You can't go out to dine. You can't go to theater. Exactly. So tell us about your work. It's got to be different during the pandemic. You run a company called Competitive Street Consulting. You're based in New York City in the heart of the financial markets. So you're used to seeing clients in person. Has that changed? Um, Well, yeah, drastically. I've been in my office uh, two times in the last uh, seven months, and I've been working remotely using all forms of um, media platforms like uh, Zoom, Skype, FaceTime, uh, WhatsApp, and I, you know, have clients across the, the country and internationally uh, based that I'm able to now work remotely with on a weekly basis for you know improving performance, taking advantage of these opportunities uh, while the market's con- continuing to ride, um, maintaining focus, concentration from where everyone is working remotely for the first time, and helping them deal with that kind of working from home burnout that is completely unprecedented in our working culture. So what kind of numbers are you seeing? Are are you busier than ever or much busier than ever? Is there more mental health issues? We read about that a lot. This pandemic has caused a lot of isolation, loneliness, and other kinds of psychological ills. Yeah, well, it's definitely uh, impacted people tremendously on an emotional level because there is a lot of isolation um, and, and, trying to become self-starters and working without, you know, people looking over your shoulder, that, that it impacts uh, motivation. It m- impacts productivity. Um, trying to stay organized becomes more difficult. And, uh, and, you know, again, the dual task of now working at home with your spouse, significant other or, and or kids and family members has also complicated matters in terms of, you know, impacting productivity. You know, the expectations of employers has not changed in terms of expecting people to be bringing their A-game every day, what's been added are the new variables of family around you and those, and those distractions of being at home. In some instances, there is even more domestic turmoil, especially in marriages that are going through difficulties, I would assume. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had to do sessions with people uh, that had to sit in their cars because they needed to discuss something about their significant other, and they didn't want to do it at home or, or when they were taking a long walk, you know, makes for a very difficult therapy session when uh, the person you need to talk about is sitting right next to you. Dr. Cass, do you think the cure for this pandemic taken by national governments is 
worse than the disease or cause, closing down every business, telling everybody to work from home, socially isolate. We see the results of that. Yeah, we can bring the caseloads down. But on the other hand, you have an increase in mental illness and some terrible outcomes mentally. Yeah, well, unfortunately, the mental illness is the fact that the mental illness is is the data point that very few people will probably notice until way after the fact. It will end up being part of this autopsy uh, a year or so after the pandemic is gone and we've normalized to some degree. There will be a lot of walking wounded um, and casualties of this pandemic that will be undernoticed and underserved throughout all of this. So, you know, again, when it comes to answering the question of you know, wh- whether the medicine was uh, better for this or worse, or are we worse off from this? You know, you can only look at, at different states um, like Florida versus New York and how people have tried to live their lives in different ways. You know, I, I guess the, the, the truth will come out of who did it right after the fact, unfortunately. We'll only know by the numbers and the statistics because those are the things that don't lie. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. My guest is Dr. Alden Cass, a clinical psychologist and therapist in New York City. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Can you give us a profile of your typical client? I know they're mostly type A personalities, and you've described them as perfectionists. Yeah, these are individuals that are very driven. They are motivated, type A personalities who are very critical of themselves from mistakes that they make. They are harshly critical of themselves when they're falling short of their goals. They are goal setters. They are basically risk cautious risk takers. You know, they basically look at the world very black and white. Either you win or you lose. Either you're right or you're wrong. And sometimes the world is gray. You have to make do with what you got. And that's where they run into trouble because they are perfectionistic, meaning like, they won't be satisfied with just, you know, doing a good enough job or things working out sort of the way they wanted to. It has to work out the way they expect. And that leads to burnout when a person's expectation for success and their actually and their actual reality, when that gap widens, that leads to burnout. And the only solution is to bridge that gap between expectations for success and the actual reality of how things will end up. An employer with one of those type A driven perfectionists in the stock trading room of a big Wall Street house might look at somebody like that and say, wow, these are great people to employ. They never leave the desk. They want to get alpha on their portfolio. They want to get the uh, best performance. This is incredible. But if they burn out, they're not much good to the employer. Right. Well, burnout is one thing. And making costly mistakes because you're burned out, you know, that costs thousands upon millions of dollars to the company, that's an even bigger problem. You know, a lot of people when they're dealing with burnout or depression or severe anxiety can make very, very 
bad mistakes and have poor judgment. Um, and this, this can, you know, when you're managing, you know, other people's millions of dollars, uh, that's, that's a luxury you really can't afford. So you really, that's why it's very important for type A individuals to take emotional checks or take their emotional temperature more regularly. Um, because there's a lot riding on them being, you know, sharp and solid and resilient when things are not working out perfectly. Have you worked with CEOs and executives in the C-suites of Wall Street? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a majority of my practice. Wow. So you get great insights. And I'm sure there are surprises along the way. Because I would have sort of assumed that a lot of the C-suite types are cool, calm, and collected. Sort of James Bond type figures. Well, there's a lot of pressure for them to still, like I said, to perform. However, and, and now, and they're managing and they have to manage down and deal with other employees who are working remotely. Um, you know, there is an important, you know, there's an important messaging that they have to follow that is, you know, coming from the top down in terms of, you know, readiness to get back to work. I mean, everyone is living in a, a scenario that, you know, they don't know when things will be normal again. When will I go back to work and face that morning commute again? Some people have fared better than others during this pandemic and have have the luxury of having a second home in another state or in the, in the mountains, you know, where they can get away with their family safely and and kind of really not miss a beat because they have a lot of open space uh, to kind of work and coexist out of. Um, and, and, you know, that's definitely one of the things that have helped certain people uh, higher up the food chain to get through this. Um, that other people working below have not had the luxury of of having, which has made things very difficult, you know, for people in smaller apartment settings and who don't have the ability to get away. Well, with modern technology, it goes without saying that uh, traders and financial professionals on Wall Street can work remotely and are working remotely. Some of them have moved to Florida from New York even to get the job done. It's not a surprise with today's environment. I recently interviewed Jim Toes. He's the president and CEO of a fabulous Wall Street trade organization, the Security Traders Association. We were talking about that point, social distancing on Wall Street, how many of his members are working from home. But I don't think any of the professionals on Wall Street see that as a long-term strategy that many want to go back to the trading floors and the company see the value of gatherings to exchange ideas, strategies, and just sheer body language. Nobody wants to be permanently stuck at home trading. Right. Well, I think what we're going to take from all of this, what I can see already starting to form, formulize, formulate is, is that when things become more normal, I think what we've learned is that people can work remotely and be productive. So therefore, I think a lot of people are going to try to do more of a hybrid type of work environment where they might take a few days at, in the city or working from a trading floor or trading desk with other people and then choose to spend two days at home and work from home. And I, I feel like that could actually be a positive that comes out of this pandemic. You know, I, I think that I myself will probably be doing that. What do you advise to Wall Streeters under stress in normal times and abnormal times? 
What do you advise them to do to cope with that? Are there any protocols that you recommend? Well, I mean, it's really all about mindfulness and being more aware of the negative or worst case scenario thoughts that are flowing through your mind at any given moment when faced with challenges or setbacks. You know, resilience is crucial right now. Um, getting through things that are uncertain, um, things that you can't really control for. Giving up that control is, is a very difficult thing to do for a type A individual. And so really what it comes down to is getting a handle on your thoughts, not being having a victim mindset, but having more of a champion mindset that helps you really tackle life's problems with action, the solutions, things from your past that can help you in the present where you've been successful when faced with similar obstacles or setbacks in your life. You know, you've got to use the past to protect you in the future. And that's one of the things that I do. It's called anchoring, where you use the past, data points from your past where you were successful, despite the fact that you were up against the wall, you had a huge challenge or an obstacle, but reminding yourself of those times where you actually experienced the same negative emotion or same negative event or one that's similar or worse and how you over, overcame it and what steps you took in the moment. But the, the crucial first step in this process, which is part of my bullish thinking monitoring system, is to identify the faulty self-talk that is generating the negative emotion to begin with. And it is usually leading to behavioral paralysis in how we are either performing at our jobs or in our lives. And tack, putting your thoughts under a microscope in real time and really learning how to challenge them, um, challenge the evidence for them. Because that really ch changing how you think when you're feeling down is a possibility. It's actually been empirically proven um, to change the chemistry in your brain. It's called cognitive restructuring. It sounds like some of your clients are obsessive compulsive types also, which brings up another point. Financial traders being clued into the stock market throughout the day. Is there a, a, come a point during their daily lives where they should just shut off and read a book, go for a walk, play some sport, just get their mind off the market completely? Well, absolutely. I mean, and I would recommend that to anyone from Wall Street to Main Street. You know, now that we're working remotely, it's, a, it's now much tougher to figure out when your end point is in a workday. Because you're never really leaving your home. And so you don't have that commute any longer to realize that there's an endpoint uh, to work. And, and you're also more, now that you're, because of the technical, technological advances, you're now even more accessible until all hours of the day and night because people aren't going anywhere. So the assumption is, is that you're around. Um, and, and that's why it's crucial for people to set boundaries not only with the people that they work with in terms of the time that they're known to be available, but, you know, in terms of allowing themselves to memorialize or set an endpoint for what they need to get accomplished each day, um, you should be doing that the day before for the next day so that you know when you can leave and feel good about leaving without guilt. Um, and when I say leave, meaning shut off your computer and actually go to a fitness app or go for a run outside, you know, do yoga, meditation, something of that nature, cook dinner. I mean, these are things that we have, we, we're going to have to adapt to in this new world as we, you know, more people work from home. 
um, until things become more normalized where we're going back to work and we'll have a, a real endpoint to a day. Of course, Wall Street has changed so remarkably like the rest of our society and economy with social media, 24-7 communication. That adds on another layer of potential stressors. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, again, it's the amount of screen time and focus. You know, again, the, the guys, you know, that I work with out of uh, South Florida are able to go take runs in the middle of their workday. And, you know, they're they're getting by. <laughs> I, we're up in the cold northeast. We had snow a few weeks ago. That sounds like paradise. Yeah, yeah. So listen, you know, some people have managed to do very well during this time. Yeah, they sure have. I congratulate them. We haven't spoken about it, but just briefly, um, I presume I know the answer, but substance and drug abuse on Wall Street, what's what's it like these days? Um, you know, I, I would say it's probably the same as it's ever been. Again, it's probably more so alcohol, if I had to guess, would alcohol addiction would be on the rise during a pandemic because you're home a lot more. And we've been hearing that alcohol sales have been improving during the pandemic all over the world. So you can make a, a, a correlation to some degree that that might impact people who are working remotely. I, I think the the issue is, is that, you know, prescription medication might be also abused more than before, you know, to deal with stress and anxiety uh, or to improve focus during times where there's uh, a lot of distractions. And again, when I say, you know, using prescription medication, it's using it off label, not being actually prescribed it uh, because you need it, but, you know, illegally using it so that you can maintain focus and concentration when things are high, when there's high distractions. But a lot of these medications that people take they're unaware that these are highly addictive and very tough to get off once you're on them. What positives will come out of today's COVID-19 economy and the shutdowns and what's happening on Wall Street, across the economy, and in terms of mental health? Will there be any good outcomes? Oh, I, I mean, I do see a lot of silver lining, you know, and, and that's actually what's helped me. It's what's helped a lot of my close friends. The fact that many can actually spend time with their kids and see them more than they've ever had. You know, these are rare, amazing opportunities that the previous pre-pandemic life may not have afforded you. I got an extra summer without my kids going away to camp. Um, you know, I got to spend that extra summer with them before they don't want anything to do with me, you know, at nine years old. And these are priceless moments where you can spend more time with the people that you love. You know, we are saving more money which also I, I happen to love. And, you know, we're, we're, our kids are in a lot fewer activities, which I thought was maybe even overkill before. I think things have kind of like, you know, maybe focus more on academics than ever before. You have a chance to. Uh, you have a chance to slow down. You have a chance to think about what you want to do with your life that we never had before because we were too busy running around from activity to activity. And, you know, it, it forces us to think about what's important and adapt to a new normal where I think more people will see, you know what, I can have the best of both worlds. Um, I can work and go into work a couple of days and work from home a couple of days and no one will think I'm slacking off, um, which was the way things were viewed about working home prior to this pandemic. I think 
there will be some benefit to this down the road. Um, I think a lot of a lot of innovation will come out of this. You know, potentially you'll see a lot fewer people crowding the big cities. Well, on that very positive note, Dr. Alden Cass, Happy New Year. It was great talking to you and good luck. Thank you. It's great having you. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.